morning. It's been a little while since I've been up here, so I hope it's like riding a bike. Sure doesn't feel like it when your heart's pounding out of your chest, but the Lord will get us through this this morning. I want to thank everyone for your prayers over this past year. As we'll call it a speed bump. Hit a little speed bump. Um, the Lord has been gracious. He's been good. He's been one that you can trust. He's been one that has kept his promise that he'll never leave you nor forsake you. God's word is eternal. It's something you can trust. It's something that you can rely upon. It's something that we have to put in our minds and in our hearts. And we have to follow by. Kevin Farrick just graduated from the academy. So we're all... I'm excited for him. Everyone's proud of him. But you know what? They didn't take Kevin Farrick and just throw him out into the field and say, here, go handle bad guys, go enforce the law and everything else. They took Kevin and they trained him. And he went through a series of uh, courses of teaching him law and so forth, as well as physical discipline and training and an endurance that he went through for approximately six months that I'm aware of. The point I'm trying to make is that when Kevin gets out and he gets into the jail and he gets onto the streets, what he's going to be able to rely on and fall back on is his training. That when this suspect or individual says, no, I'm not doing what you're, you say I'm going to, what you're telling me to do, he then has to take action. He then goes into training mode. And they've said that when an officer, a police officer, gets into a shooting or in the military, what they revert back to is it basically at times slows down. Everything gets into slow motion because you have someone over here that wants to kill you. And they said what, what, what kicks into gear is your training. It should be second nature. Um, in our police academy, we drew our weapons thousands of times to put that, that, that instinct within you. Because if you think in that moment when you hit that, that situation that all of a sudden you're going to figure out what to do, well, let me reason, think this out. By that time, the, the guy is, already gets the upper hand on you. We've had two situations in the past couple of weeks where it, it was a situation where I got in a fight with one of them, a fight with an individual who... Had three felony warrants. He's uh, a gang member. And we went to pick him up at his house. He saw us. He ran. He was trying to get back into the house. And when you get in that situation where you're trying to take him into custody, everything just kind of slows down. You kind of, it's a weird situation. But what, we, what you go towards is your training, your instinct, what you, you've thought through in your mind and what you, you go and do. Another situation just a couple of days ago, we uh, had a guy who's been on the run for a while. He's this great uh, Assembly Bill 109, this early release. They're letting out bad guys, real bad guys. And we have 150 alone that they've let released from prison with all kinds of violent uh, criminal charges on their rap sheet. But this guy, finally, we, we got to the house, and he was in there, and I went to the back bedroom, to, and, and I saw his mom was trying to cover for him. And then as I went to the back bedroom, his girlfriend came out, and then she tried to like get in our way. As soon as I went in, this guy was going for the closet. I grabbed him, yanked on him. My partner came over, 
Down we tumbled and got him into custody. Myself and my partner, then the rest of the officers, we ended up with a dog pile, and this guy learned a lesson not to resist. But um, to make a long story short, hesitation, he could have got a gun. If my other partner would not have been there, I would have been all alone. And you go into this training mode to uh, take him into custody. The same as your Christian faith. When you're coming along, you hit that speed bump. Do you think that all of a sudden you're going to become the great theologian and understand the scriptures? Do you think that when life challenges you, whether it's death, sickness, cancer, whatever it might be, you think that all of a sudden we're going to rise up to this great men of faith that we see in Hebrews 11? There's a time of training. All the disciples had a time of training. And we've got to put the word of God in our heart and in our mind. We trust God for salvation. It doesn't start, stop there. We need to trust God with our lives. Take this word of God. Read it. Understand it and do it. There's times in your life when you just don't understand the scriptures. You don't understand what God's telling you to do. There's times when you're going to read this Bible and you're going to go, I, I don't agree with this. I think this way is better. And everything within you is going to say, go this way. But the Lord. It's not easy to follow the scriptures. And we don't have to like it. We don't have to understand it. We don't have to uh, be the great theologian and, and give all the reasons and break down. God wants you to do is just believe it. And when you believe it, and you trust in him, and you take your problems and your issues to him, he is the one alone that is able to work everything out. Our Lord's amazing. He is truly an amazing God. And we've got to trust him with our lives. Because if we want to reject what the scriptures have to say, what ends up happening? Heartache. Trouble. Uh, we bring it upon ourselves. Uh, Christians, we go through tribulations. We're going to go through stuff in life. That's just the way it is. Um, sins in the world. And God's going to use tribulations and sufferings. And when you go through this time of suffering, we don't have to immediately look for the relief of that suffering. But endure it. Just suffer through it. The Lord is there carrying you through. Because in the end result, when we submit to him, it is so much greater in how he teaches us. So what I want to focus on today primarily is not only we got to have faith for salvation, but the Bible says the just shall live by faith. It doesn't stop at salvation and then we transition into something else. It's continual faith, 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 faith onward. We never stop. We never stop trusting God. And what we end up doing and what we see in the world today is we see Christians that co-mingle the world and God, pick and choose what they want, and then when they end up with heartache, they end up blaming God for the wrong decisions that they made. The, the Lord is very clear in his scriptures that the world is at enmity with God. The world and God do not co-mingle. There, there's nothing in this world that we need. We don't need their psychology. We don't need their counseling. We don't need anything that they have. We have everything we need in the word of God. You guys believe that? You believe that everything God's given us for life and godliness in order to live for him is in the word of God. 
So when we turn on the TV and we listen to Dr. Phil or Oprah, not to pick on them per se, but they're the, the most famous uh, wisdom of this world in this day and age, do we take the scriptures and then all of a sudden say, well, Oprah said this, so let me take Oprah, Dr. Phil's wisdom, and the scripture's wisdom and combine them together and somehow we get this, this great understanding. It doesn't work that way. There's only one answer for today. There's only one answer for your life, and that is Jesus Christ. He died on the cross not only to save you from your sins, but to save you from yourself, to save you from this world, to save you from destruction. He's the only answer for today. Not the, earth's, not the world's wisdom, not the world's counseling, not the, everything that the, the world has to offer. He alone is sufficient for all our needs. You guys believe that? It's amazing. You know, I watch this show every once in a while. I, I like nature shows. My, my kids make fun of me because I just like nature shows. I like watching wild animals. I think the creation that the Lord has given us is magnificent. Um, so that, that's my, my thing. Um, there's a show called Gator Boys. Anyone seen that show? These guys are crazy. Uh, basically, they go and, and, and down in Louisiana, Florida, and, and so forth. But you get the gators that come out of the swamps into the communities, and then they end up in someone's swimming pool. Or one episode I saw, it was a church, and they have a big pond out there, and now you have a, a gator in there. And uh, rightfully so, these people are afraid of gators. So what they do is they call the gator boys, and they come out, these two guys. And one of the guys is so crazy, he gets in the water and snorkels around looks for the, the alligator. I wouldn't do that, but <laughs> he goes and gets a rope around it, and they drag it out and everything else. But these guys know the gators. The whole point of this story is, is that... Say that you take the, uh, the pool or whatever it might be, this pond of where people are coming around swimming. What are they afraid of? What are they really scared of? They really, do they really care that the gator's in there swimming around? Well, yes or no. But what they're really afraid of is that at one day there's going to be a kid or someone that gets close to the water. And what, that, what is that alligator going to do? Out of the water it comes, does what it does, chomps down on the, the child takes them into the water and, and, and kills them, or if not, leaves injuries. So what they all say is when they approach uh, the gator boys, they say, we need to get this out of here. We have people that swim in this pond or in this, this area. We can't have this alligator roaming free in here. Take it out. This should be our perspective of the world. Many Christians let that gator stay in the, in the, the pond. That's the world. And we think that one day we're not going to get bit. We think that one day nothing's going to happen. But there will be a come a time when someone gets bit by that alligator. If you play with the world and you keep one foot in the world and one foot in the church and think that you can somehow manage because you think you have the strength Sin will have its way with you, and it will destroy you. It is a guarantee. It's a guarantee. What is a way to avoid getting bit by the alligators of this world? Trusting in God and his word. 
That's a shield. That's a protection. God doesn't make Ten Commandments and give you all this stuff and, 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 and lead you by His Spirit to only be a killjoy. He's preserving. He's protecting. When you watch these shows, especially during the Super Bowl time, what do you see? You see beer commercials of people having this good time, drinking whatever it is, Coors Light, or, or, or it's such a good time, or whatever it is, uh, their mixed drink, their Jose Cuervo, whatever it might be. That commercial shows that this is so much fun. That commercial doesn't show when a police officer gets called to the house because the drunk dad is abusing his children or his wife or when he's neglecting his kid. That commercial doesn't show the guy that gets into the car drunk as can be and crashes into someone and kills them. And we can go on and on with these commercials and how they portray the world as being so fun. And they're fun for a time and you entertain this. There will come a time when it will destroy your life. I've seen a 21-year-old sitting in a holding tank in a jail cell. Went out and drank on his 21st birthday, drove home drunk and crashed into someone and killed him. Manslaughter. Maybe a great kid. We play with the world, you will get bit. We have cable TV coming into our houses as well as probably many of you. We gotta be careful. We pipe this garbage right into our house. And when we watch TV shows, when we observe this stuff, what ends up happening is we start to think that this is reality. That we think this is true. This is what life's about. We take on the world's perspective. Hollywood has it easy. They have it right into everybody's homes. They can tell you what to think, how to believe, what is truth. I don't know how many shows have come on uh, Discovery Channel, whatever it might be, History Channel, and, and they're trying to show you, you know, they, you think you're going to watch something that says the Bible's accurate and true, and they do everything they can to try to prove that it's not. Or the resurrection of Christ. They don't go over the evidence that shows that he did resurrect. And Chris Shorter made the comment, he's been to universities from California all the way to New York. He's preached in open air for over 25 years or so. He's been to UCLA, Berkeley, it doesn't matter, all the universities. He said there's not been one person that could stand up, not one professor that can stand up and give him any substantial truth to prove that Jesus Christ is not raised from the dead. They can't. They try, but they can't. He rose from the dead. That, that tomb was empty. So we have to believe and trust in the word of God. Not only for salvation with our lives. And no matter if we understand it or not, we trust it. I had a common theme. I don't know why it keeps coming up, but I had, I've had a couple people ask me. Their opinion is, is that they believe when you come together in the church, why can't women pray? And they give me all this, this reasoning behind why they think they should be able to pray. And my great theological answer is, I don't know. The word of God says for women to keep silence in the churches. It says it. I believe it. We don't have to understand it. God knows what's best. God's designed it. We've cut, he's the one that's behind this book. He wrote it just to believe it. And what we're going to look at this morning is we're going to look at 
two individuals, Cain and Abel. These two, turn with me to Hebrews chapter 11. And these two individuals, as I've read this story, and the Lord laid it upon my heart, the theology and the understanding of who God is and his ways are just incredible. This simple story written 4,000 years ago. As you're turning there, I'm going to read uh, some common verses that you know. Obviously, I've already quoted, the just shall live by faith. Romans 10, 17 says, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. So what is faith? Faith is not something that we just muster up within us that if I go to play a lottery and I buy that scratcher and I think, well, if I have enough faith, then I'm going to win. And you try to get some power of faith up and then you scratch it off and then, oh, look, I won. That's not what faith is. Faith is believing in something. There's a substance to faith. There's an object of faith. And the faith that we believe in is the word of God. It says very simply, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. It's what God says that we put our faith in. If God didn't say it, can we have faith in it? He didn't say it. He didn't tell me I was going to win the lottery. I can scratch off a thousand lottery tickets. He never promised me that. Did he, did he promise you eternal life? Did he promise to bless his word? Yeah. He will do what he says. And that's why we got to put the word of God in our heart and in our minds and follow by it. Because if we don't know the word of God, how are you going to have faith? We trust in what God says. And whether it's for salvation or whether for the Christian faith, people think we come to the Christian faith that good works is whatever I want to do that's good. Well, in essence, it could be. But good works is what God has already established and has told us to do. Love the brethren. It's a good work. He's commanded us to do it. And so on and so forth. But when we take God's word and we believe it and we do it, there's blessings involved. But we've got to be careful. When God didn't promise something, well, we can still pray about it. And one thing that I find amazing God has not promised that everyone will be saved. He hasn't promised me that my kids will be saved. He hasn't promised me that my marriage will be bliss. He promises to be faithful to me and to my children. We've got to be very clear about this. There are certain areas that God does not enter into, and we've got to understand that every person, and we're going to find out with Cain and Abel, every person is accountable for themselves. And just because you have a godly parent or just because this or that, which we're going to find out, is not necessary a guarantee that your kids are going to follow in your footsteps and go. And God doesn't promise that. Does that scare you? But I'll tell you this, God promises to do everything to draw them unto himself. There's certain areas, such as when you see two people separating and divorce and so forth, that God just, for whatever reason, doesn't intervene in the sense of forcing. Not in the sense of, is the Spirit of God working? Absolutely. Is God want to reconcile to people? Absolutely. But you've got to understand, God does not drag anyone kicking and screaming. It's a, it's, a, it's a tough thing to wrestle with. That's why we trust in God. And God tells the person that, that is saved and, and the other person, if someone, two people are unbelievers and one gets saved and the other one doesn't, 
There's no guarantee that this person is going to get saved, but what does he say? Submit yourself to him if you're the wife. Do good works amongst them. Well, what will end up happening? You're going to sanctify this person. He's going to see it, and the Lord is going to use that, and Lord willing, they will get saved. This is important stuff to understand. In Hebrews chapter 11, look at verse 6. But without faith, it is impossible to please God. For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is the rewarder of those who diligently seek him. If you want to please God, you've got to do it by faith. What God wants to see you do is he wants to see you read his word, take it in, and say, yes, Lord, and go and do it. That's what he wants. That's what faith is. That's what trusting is. Bill McDonald put it very simply. Faith is believing in the promises of God, trusting God in what he has said, and that he is able to do it. So we take his word, and we trust in it. Verse 11, chapter 11, verse 1 says, Now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Now look at verse 4. Now we're going to go, I I know many of you here know what faith is, but just for the foundational uh, message, look at verse 4 is what we're going to focus on today. By faith, okay, Abel offered to God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain, to which he obtained witnesses that he was righteous, God testifying of his gifts, through it he being still being dead still speaks. By faith, which means Abel heard the word of God, believed it, and did what God told him to do. And he offered a more excellent sacrifice. Then came. All right, let's turn back to Genesis chapter 4. And we're going to look at this a little more in depth. And I want to be honest with yourself. And as we look at this, I believe personally there's a lot of similarities in the church today. Maybe even more so with Cain than there is with Abel. That might shock you a little bit, but as we look at it, hopefully it'll become clearer. And if you'll give me some liberties... We're going to examine this. Before we do that, I'm going to read a couple verses that refer to Cain. So we can see the, the, the picture of Cain in the New Testament. 1 John 3, 11 and 12 says, For this is the message that you heard from the beginning, that we should love one another, not as Cain, who was of the wicked one, and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his works were evil and his brothers righteous. Jude, verse 11, says, Woe to them, talking about false teachers, false prophets, for they have gone in the way of Cain and have run greedily in the air of Balaam for profit and have perished in the rebellion of Korah. One of the essential characteristics of a false teacher today is they have gone in the way of Cain. Well, let's look at what these mean here. Chapter 4, verse 1. Now Adam and Eve knew his, now Adam knew his knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain and said, I have acquired a man from the Lord. Then she bore again, this time his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of the sheep, but Cain was a tiller of the ground. And in the process of time it came to pass that Cain brought an offering of the fruit of the ground to the Lord. Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat. And the Lord respected Abel and his offering, but he did not respect Cain and his offering. And Cain was very angry, and his countenance fell. So the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry, and why has your countenance fallen? 
If you do well, will you not be accepted? If you do not do well, sin lies at the door, and its desire is for you, but you should rule over it. Now Cain talked with Abel, his brother, and it came to pass when they were in the field but that Cain rose up against Abel, his brother, and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, Where is Abel, your brother? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And he said, Why, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. So now you are cursed from the earth, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you till the ground, it shall no longer yield its strength to you. A fugitive and a vagabond, you shall be on the earth. And Cain said to the Lord, My punishment is greater than I can bear. Surely you have driven me out this day from the face of the ground. I shall be hidden from your face. I shall be a fugitive and a vagabond on the earth. And it will happen that anyone who finds me will kill me. And the Lord said to him, Therefore, whoever kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord set a mark on Cain, as anyone finding him should kill him. Verse 16, then Cain went out from the presence of the Lord. What an interesting story. I, I've read this story probably over a dozen times. I'm sure you have as well. Um, I've never personally sat down and actually examined it, but when the Lord laid this upon my heart, I started reading it. I was amazed at how much understanding of God and of sin is in this little story. It's a tremendous story. It's a famous story. You could probably talk to most people today, and they probably have heard of Cain and Abel. It's a very popular one. Here you have the, what we believe is possibly the very first people born, Cain and Abel. only reason why I say that is, is some maybe suggest that maybe Adam and Eve had girls earlier and didn't record it. But as far as we know, Cain and Abel were uh, the very first people born into this world. Here you have... Adam and Eve, the very first created beings, as their parents. Here you have Cain and Abel, two individuals, born of the same parent, two different choices made in life. They were raised in the same environment. They were probably told stories of uh, living in the garden of uh, Adam and Eve. And if you give me a liberty, it's not recorded here, but I'm sure that they were told many times of how it was in the Garden of Eden and where they used to dwell because we know these stories are passed on through time and Moses records it. Can you imagine sitting there with your dad, Adam? Yeah, son, I had it pretty good. I blew it. <laughs> oh, man, I had the coolest tiger. He was my pet. He would come every morning and lick me in the face and wake me up. We had all the, the fruit in there. The watermelons were this big. The tomatoes, Dave loves tomatoes. Probably the best tomatoes you've ever tasted. Incredible life. Ah, oh, they didn't have to work. He pruned the trees. He took care of stuff, picked the fruit. They had it good. You think of these uh, uh, athletes that go and they make millions of dollars. They end their career and they blow it all and bankrupt. And you think of how mad they must get and how they've blown it. Think of how Adam and Eve felt being kicked out of the Garden of Eden. They blew it all right. And you don't think Cain and Abel heard about this? 
you'd probably hear me. If it was, if it was me, you'd hear me grumbling every day. Man, I had it so good in the Garden of Eden. And it wasn't for that wife of mine. <laughs> they had it good. But what did God reveal to Adam and Eve that they, I believe, would reveal unto their sons? They would have revealed to them the fact of when they sinned against God. And in verse chapter 3 and verse 7 of Genesis, after they had sinned, it says, Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves coverings. The very first thing that they realized is that they are naked before God. And why were they afraid of God when he comes and he's walking in the garden and they go and hide themselves and they're afraid because he said that if you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall surely die. Now, you think if you just sinned against God, you don't think that God's going to come and that's it? It's over? Well, they tried to sew on man-made religion and sew on fig leaves to cover up their nudity. To cover up themselves before God. And God says, no, that is not fit for my presence. I will not accept that. This is an important lesson for them. They're probably sitting there like they're about to go to the execution. We're done, man. God's just going to take our lives. He's going to snap his fingers and we'll drop to the ground dead. Uh, What does God do? Look at verse 21 of chapter 3. Also for Adam and his wife, the Lord God made tunics of skin and clothed them. What did God teach them in the very beginning? Now, can you imagine this? You're about ready. You, you think you're going to die. You think you're going to, this is it. God's going to wipe you off the face of the earth. And God teaches them this important lesson of substitution. And he takes an animal and God kills the animal. He takes the skin off and he clothes them. He makes them right for his presence. You don't think this taught Adam and Eve a tremendous lesson of who God is and what he requires? That without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. There has to be a substitution for sin. God's a holy, a righteous God. You don't come to God in your own merit, your own works. God makes you fit. And this is why he sent his son. He gave them a picture of his son that would come and take their place on the cross of Calvary and pay for their sins. This has to be ringing in their ears. They have to understand this. God tells them. So this is the background of Adam and Eve and Cain and Abel. As they're being raised by these parents, they perhaps were told all this stuff. When Eve has Cain, what does Eve say? She gets a little excited here. She says, I have acquired a man from the Lord. I believe possibly what this is referring to is the seed. Of where the seed of Eve was going to bruise or crush the serpent's head. And now she's looking at Cain. I have my boy. This is my seed. This is the one that's going to destroy the serpent. She gets a little excited. And for those of you that are not firstborns, but second and thirdborns, you're going to understand the way Abel feels here. And then she bore again, this time, his brother Abel. That's it, man. You're second fiddle. Everyone's excited about the firstborn. The second one comes along, the middle child. What is he always neglected? What did Abel get? He'd get hand-me-downs. He'd get... The firstborn gets everything, man. They got 20,000 outfits. Yeah, that's Jeff back there. He has all the new outfits, and then I get the stained clothes stuff after him. 
I get to hand me down bikes and everything else. But Eve put her faith, faith not in the Lord, but in Cain. I have acquired a man from the Lord. And then Abel comes along. Some have suggested perhaps they were twins. I don't know. It doesn't say, but um, she bore again this time. I, I don't know. But it doesn't really matter. Now, they had two different occupations. Abel was a keeper of the sheep. But Cain followed in his father's footsteps and was a tiller of the ground. Now look at verse 3 as we're moving on and we're running out of time. In the process of time, it came to pass that Cain brought an offering of the fruit of the ground to the Lord. Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat. And the Lord respected Abel and his offering, but he did not respect Cain and his offering. In the process of time, perhaps as time went on, they probably observed their parents as well bring burnt offerings to the Lord. So they had to have, without a doubt, an understanding and a knowledge of what God required of them on this day. I do not believe that they came with the, the wisdom and knowledge of their own selves and the understanding of God and came and said, here, Lord, let me just give you what I have and in, 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 in hope this is accepted. They knew. The reason why I read all these verses in the story in the background is that Cain and Abel had to know exactly what God required of them, and if they did not do it, then it was sin. You see, sin is very important. It's missing the mark. Without a mark, there is no sin. And you can check that out in Romans chapter 5, that, that, uh, and as well as in, we're not going to turn to it, I was going to read it, but we don't have time, but in Romans chapter 2, that the revelation of God, that as God reveals himself to you, now he sets you up that you have to either be obedient or if you disobey, you sin. But if, there's no, if God has not revealed something to you, then there's no sin. It's what he requires of you. Um, and he's revealed himself in, in several different ways. It might be through creation. It might be through the conscience. But he has to reveal himself to you and then hold you accountable. And he makes it very clear that in verse 7, if you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin lies at the door. And we look at Romans chapter 2 and the judgment of God, it's according to truth. It's according to deeds or works. There's no partiality in God's judgment. It's according to revelation, and it's according to the gospel. But in order for this to be sin for Cain, he had to know full well what God required of him. And he did not do it. And God holds him accountable for that. God revealed to him it had to be a blood sacrifice. And I believe Cain here, he believes in God. He knows God exists. I mean, look at his parents. But I believe Cain is a typical picture of natural man and his ability to take his intellect, his wisdom, his knowledge, everything he thinks, and move over here and say, I'm going to give what I think is, is really good for God. Now, I believe when Cain came to bring his offering, it doesn't say here that he brought the very best of the fruits, but I, I perhaps could suggest that you have the altar here and he brings it. You don't think he neatly arranged it, set everything up, colorful, beautiful, and he's thinking in his mind that, hey, you know, God's going to, he's going to love this, man. 
God's just going to be so pleased with me. If he wasn't thinking that, then his countenance would not have fallen. He had his hopes up. He was like, hey, man, I'm coming to God and I'm bringing what I think he's going to love. How many of us do that in the church today? How many of us do this in our own lives? Look in Christendom. How many of us go about to the church and we think, well, God is happy that I'm here today. And I'm going to come and I'm going to present myself in my own way. You know, the Bible says in Romans chapter 12, 1 and 2, that the offerings that we bring are what? We are a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. Now, we know people are saved, and we know from the scriptures that there's carnal Christians. How many of us are still operating like Cain? Thinking that I can come to the holy God, the God, the creator of the universe, the sustainer of all things, disregard what his word says, and imply my own wisdom of worship, of obedience, of service. I just mentioned a story that in the past year I've had it asked to me twice about women praying in the local meeting. And if you read the same Bible I read that it says, let your women keep silent in the churches, what is this? And as you listen to them, they give you reasoning behind, well, you know, women are beautiful and they can express themselves so well, true? And they give reason after reason. This is Cain and his reasoning of why he thought his fruit offering is going to be accepted before the Lord. It's all throughout scriptures of man thinking that he's wiser than God and the arrogance of man that steps inside this gathering of thinking that I'm greater than the creator of the universe. I know better than him. But the Lord is so gracious. He's so loving. He wants to save Cain. He wants to save Cain. Now, Cain represents the unsaved person. We already read scriptures of who he is. Abel represents the Christian, the spiritual man. The one that may not have understood to bring a blood sacrifice, but he within himself heard God, believed it, and what ends up happening? When you have faith in, in what God says, what do you do? You act on it. You move. You go. I mean, to have faith and just sit there and not move, that's not really faith. That's just harboring head knowledge. But he believed what God said. He believed that if he brought a blood sacrifice, and that would be sufficient for the atonement for his sins. He believed God could make a cl- cl- covering for him that would make him fit for the kingdom of God. And if you're here this morning, you're one of these two people. You're either Cain or you're Abel. You're either coming to God right now with your own merits, with your own works, with your own fruit offering, with all your good works, and saying, here, God, accept me. Is that the position you stand this morning? Or you're in the position of Abel that admits he's a sinner, that knows he can't save himself, that knows he is unrighteous, and that he is separated from a holy and righteous God, and that there must be shedding of blood for the remission of sins. And he believes God can make him righteous. And he trusts God. And he brings what God has asked him to bring, that picture of 
an animal. And he brought not only an animal of his flock, but the best. He brought the very best. The firstborn, the fattest. And he comes and brings the best to the Lord. Is that our Christian service? Bringing the best for the Lord? Offering up the best that we have? Or we put Lord on the back burner and, and, and I'll give him my leftover? He wants the best. We are just like Cain and Abel bringing an offering. We bring a spiritual offering. We offer up ourselves. We come this morning to the Lord's Supper and offer up spiritual offerings of, who the, of the Lord Jesus Christ to the Father. Are we digging in and bringing the best? This is what Abel did. Have you trusted the Savior this morning? Have you trusted that Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins? And that you're a sinner and that you're separated from a holy and righteous God. And that you believe that the death of Jesus Christ, based upon the word of God, has paid in full for your sins. That he died for you. He's your substitute. All your sins are heaped upon him. And the Bible's very clear. There must be a time in which you confess that you are a sinner before God and receive salvation. Receive Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior. At that time... You possess eternal life. He saves you. Hallelujah. This is what Cain believed, or Abel believed. Cain went about himself. Now, in the last two minutes, I want to look at something very important. If you're a Calvinist, I'm sorry. Because these next few verses just blow the Calvinist doctrine out of the water. I don't know what to tell you. Either you believe the word of God or you don't. But look at what the Lord did. He came to Cain. Cain's an unbeliever. Cain is not saved. Cain is a follower of his own righteous ways. But what the Lord does with Cain and he does with every individual person from Adam and Eve on is he reaches out to them and he tries to draw them to himself. He wants to save everybody. He wants to, wants to reach out. He doesn't want any to perish. But he wants all to come to repentance. But look at what the graciousness of God in Cain is that this, it says, verse 6, So the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry and why is your countenance fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? If you do not do well, sin lies at the door and his desire is for you, but you should rule over it. He has an option and God put an option before him. You bring the right sacrifice. You trust in me. You believe in me. You'll be accepted. If you don't, what lies at the door? Sin. There's a choice laid before Cain. As well as laid before every individual here, every person in this world, the choice of either you receive Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, or you reject him and you take your own offering. There's a choice here. And God is appealing to Cain. Look at the, the depth of what he says. He says, if you do not do well, sin lies at the door. I can guarantee you that you play with the world, sin lies at the door. It's ready for you. And look at what God reveals, and we don't have time to get into all this, but look at what he says, and its desire is for you. Sin's desire is to rule over you, to dominate you, to have dominion over you. Its desire is to destroy you, to consume you. An example that God gives here, and not only that he reveals it to the very first two people born in this world, but he demonstrates it that Cain, as he rejects God, what does he do? He does the unthinkable and murders his brother. He doesn't want to retain God in his thoughts. And if we went to Romans chapter 1, you'll see this played out in a beautiful passage of that where the people of God, God reveals himself to them. 
and they don't want to retain God in their hearts and their thoughts and their minds, and they want to put him, push him away. And what does Cain do? The same to his brother that he kills him. Three times, if you read through these scriptures, God appeals to Cain to repent. He comes after him. He comes after him. And finally what you see in verse 16 is Cain makes his choice and he goes out from the presence of the Lord. The theology here is tremendous. And we don't have time to get into it, but sin and what it will do to your life is evident in Cain. We're capable of doing a lot worse than what we are even, uh, that we even are. We think that we can stand against sin. It will consume you. It will destroy you, just as it did Cain. Just in closing, read this section for yourself as well and and, and draw some more uh, nuggets out of it. But just in closing, let's really be honest and examine our lives and what we're offering to God how we're going about the Christian faith. If we want revival, if we want a change in our lives, you've got to trust the living God. Let the world go. As long as you keep that foot in the world, as long as you keep piping into your house, this stuff will consume you. You might think you can stand now, but there will come a time. It's just like that alligator that's in the, the, in the, the pond. It will come out and bite you. And when it does, it's devastating. This stuff on TV and Hollywood and everything else looks so glorious and so glamorous until it hits you in your own home, until you experience it for yourself. All of a sudden you go, man, this stuff isn't that funny. I've had people that talk about shows and all, but it's funny. But yeah, there's homosexuality in it. There's adultery. There's this, there's that. Oh, but these people are funny. Not so funny when you live in it. Just remember that. The Lord wants to preserve you, keep you, and his ways is always better than the world's. Better than anything you can think of. You live for him, you put him first. You will have bumps, you will have bruises, but you will go through life a lot better than if you don't. Let's bow in a word of prayer. Our gracious God, Father, we just believe in you. We believe in your word, Father, from Genesis to Revelation, to every jot and tittle, that you are able to fulfill it to the uttermost, Father. Father, we know that you have fulfilled your word in sending your Son and given him to the cross of Calvary. If there's ever anything that is the hardest thing to fulfill, is that is to turn your back on your only begotten Son in whom you've loved. And if you could fulfill your word in that, Father how much more you're going to fulfill your word and everything else and coming again to take us home and preserving us and keeping us. Father, conform us to the image of Christ. Put your word in our hearts and minds and guide us. Let us exercise our gifts, build up one another, exhort one another, keep one another in prayers. And Father, just help us stand. In the name of Lord Jesus, we pray. Amen.